Welcome to another episode of Phobia, a podcast on perception, images, and visual media, all from a communication perspective. I'm your host, Dr. Gordon Coonfield. I'm an associate professor of communication at Villanova University, and I am coming at you with another installment in the series, Why We Read. Basically, a series of extended conversations between Dr. Kathleen Oswald and myself about the text we use in our teaching and research on visual communication. We are going to explore the context. We are going to engage the arguments, and we're going to talk about their value for understanding visual communication. Today, we're talking about color and perception and culture. Think about it. When did you learn how to distinguish red and blue and purple and black and white? How did you learn what these things meant? And how did that learning shape the way you perceive the world? In part one of a two-parter, we're going to raise and address some interesting questions about the relationship between culture, communication, and perception. So sit back and get ready to focus on part one of why we read how culture conditions the colors we see. Let's start by wrecking the format. Okay. I think this essay has a lot of cool quotes in it. So let's talk about some of the cool quotes. All right. Well, what's your, what are some of the quotes that you really enjoy uh, in this particular piece? Uh, so this is going to be going to seem like kind of a weird one to start with, but I think it like, bam, throws the gauntlet on the table. He, this is at the bottom of 154 and he writes, what is content? The content of communication in this uh, in the system of content and expression, not the external world. Expressions do not signify things or states of the world. At most, they are used to communicate with somebody about states of the world. The reason I like it so much is because he's, I think, trying to explain that what culture does is it organizes the world for us. We collectively are involved in this process of organizing the external world into the forms of content. And those forms of content become articulated to forms of expression, language. And they have this dynamic relationship with one another, which is what I think the, the little graph figure 11.2 just above this on the page is trying to indicate. So you have these sort of twin processes. One is pulling form and content of it, or the uh, substance and form of content together on one hand. And on the other hand, there's the pulling together of the form and substance of expression. And that these together are what make perception and communication possible. So that's why he says, at best, what we are doing when we use a sign in an act of communication is communicating with another person who shares this understanding of the world, this agreement about how the world is organized, both as content and expression. That at the very best, what we are doing is communicating with that person about some state of the world that we have collectively sort of agreed on. I think you must have read my mind. You knew what it was that I was going to talk about next because I think think that having that laid out is a great base for this is which is my favorite 
part of the reading is this idea of practices select pertinences. I knew that's the one you were going to pick. That's yeah. one of my favorites too. So talk yeah. about that. How does that, how do you think that connects? So pertinences, I think that, you know, that word choice is a little bit weird because I don't think we, you know, throw pertinence around an awful lot in our conversation. So, <laughs> um, so to kind of say like, what's relevant, what's salient, like what is uh, a useful category or way of talking about things. So if we're going to communicate with another person, we have to think about what's going to be relevant culturally so that they can understand what it is that we are trying to communicate. But the words that we have, the way that we think about color, the words that we choose, they're all focused around what is relevant to us and what is relevant in the moment, but also what's relevant culturally. So that's a broader conversation. So one of the ways I like to explain this is, you know, when you're a kid, it's important to know red, green, yellow, blue, brown, black, orange, these more basic colors that you're going to see all the time in this more limited set. Then you think about graduating to the box of 24 crayons. Now all of a sudden you have different colors that become pertinent. Maybe the difference between um, magenta and red and pink and violet. And so this kind of expands those pertinences. But then you think about somebody who is uh, an interior designer. What's pertinent to them and what's relevant to them when they talk about color could range into the hundreds different names of colors. And so really their professional practice and, you know, your life experience is going to help to shape what's categorically relevant. Um, You know, if we're sitting at a table and there's like, uh, you know, if there's a red cup, a green cup and a blue cup and I say, pass me the red cup, then that's all I need to say is red. But if there's a crayon cranberry cup and there's a pink cup and there's kind of an opaque red cup, I'm going to have to use more specific words because in that situation, that becomes highly salient to describing what it is I want you to pass to me. Right. So just above that quote that you read, I think is kind of where he pulls this together. He says that this means that a given culture organizes the world according to given practices or practical purposes and consequently considers as pertinent different aspects of the world. What you just said about like, you know, a construction worker who, you know, maybe doesn't really care about all of these weird color names versus the interior decorator who cares enormously about the differences, the subtle differences between different colors. They're involved in different cultural practices. And it's those practices that the pressure that they bring to bear upon the person who is engaged in them to communicate about them, right? And at the same time, if you think about the construction worker, they probably have more intimate understanding of certain other things that are more pertinent and salient for them that you might look at a nail and say it's a nail and they might say that's a roofing nail, that's a siding nail. You know, they might be able to look at it and tell the length and know that it's important where folks who have not really engaged in any kind of like uh, construction, building or renovation might think any nail will do the trick. Right. So even though we all are technically speaking the same language, um, English, American English, we have different sets of cultural units at work. And we need words in order to talk about those cultural units with one another. That's how semiotic systems develop. And that's how they come to be refined over time. There's a great quote by uh, an American like philosopher, I guess, slash communication scholar uh, named John Dealey, who writes a lot about Persian kind of approach to semiotics, which is what I think is at work in the background of Echo's essay. But he's got this great uh, definition for a sign. A sign is that which every object presupposes. That's like, what? But 
What he's, I think, getting at there is that if something is an object, then it's moved from the experience or uh, I guess we could say the perception side of things to the recognition side of things. And when we recognize it, we have a word for it, a sign that is connected to it. Here are the cultural units. Here are Here's the warehouse of all of the cultural units that are available to you. Here are all the labels that go with those cultural units. Now go home and study them. Or that's what ensures that we are able to communicate about the world or about states of the world with another person. Yeah. And actually, I think it would be great if, if you could kind of lay out a primer on semiotic, because it's my guess that it's highly likely that readers of this essay who are probably don't have the background in semiotics that you do. So if you were to give like <laughs> the quick and dirty on semiotics, how what would you say are the most important things for someone to walk away from this idea of semiotics with in order to, to understand? it moving forward. All right. So first, let me share what I think is a hilarious, but also very apt quote. This is from a British media studies guy named Paddy Wannell. And he said that uh, semiotics tells us things we already know in a language no one understands. There's some truth to that, that we have like this sort of complex language at work here, a very, should we call it a refined code of signification? And it talks about about things, though, that we all like readily understand. But this goes to my argument that part of what we're trying to learn to do here is to slow seeing down, to allow us to be able to break it down and analyze what's really going on when we're when we see, we look at the world and we go, oh, that's blue. Oh, that's yellow. Oh, that's red. But that's culture becoming recognition, unfiltered through any sort of thought process. It's just like, bam, automatic. But semiotics gives us a language to describe the process that's at work in the background of this sort of automatic process of recognition. And that's what I think is valuable about it. So obviously, the first thing is what is a sign? Again, that quote by John Dealey, a sign is that which every object presupposes suggests that there are relationships between certain things and certain other things. And the way Echo talks about this earlier in this essay is he says that a, a sign, he says, is that which stands to someone for something in some respect or capacity. If something is standing for something else, the way the American flag maybe stands for a nation, an idea, patriotism. The American flag is a symbol in this case, which is a particular kind of sign that stands for something other than itself. It doesn't stand for the flag. It stands for these really kind of complex ideas and this shared collective history and memory and all of these assumptions and all of this stuff, right? The sign stands for that something else in a particular way. It doesn't look like it, right? The American flag doesn't look like the, for example, the, the continuous 48 states. So it doesn't stand in resemblance, but in a more symbolic way, a really kind of abstract symbolic way. Stars, white stars on a blue field, red, white, and blue stripes. It's uh, It stands to someone, particular someone who's looking at it, and, you know, another someone who's using it to do some communicating for something other than itself in a particular way. And this is true of language. 
is also a particular kind of sign system. Animals engage in semiotics. There's a field called zoosemiotics that studies the way animals use signs and symbols to communicate. So why I think this is important is that instead of beginning from the preposition or the proposition that language is a sign system and if we understand language, we understand and we can apply that to all sign systems, everything works like a language. That is a very anthropomorphic in the case of zoosemiotics, but also um, a very flawed understanding. There are all kinds of sign systems that have nothing to do with language. And um, I think that's why this approach that Echo takes, the sort of Persian American pragmatist approach to the study of signs and sign systems is really much more, more rich and much more interesting because it allows us to look at social communication at various systems like language and uh, images and colors and uh, all kinds of things and ask not how does this work like a language, but how does this work? How does it work to communicate? I think that you're on to something there with explaining um, to, you know, again, the person who is new to these ideas, that flag example makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the flag does not look like the map of the United States, but in a way, if you think about it, it's way more useful because people were probably more familiar with a flag um, than they were with the shape of the country as it changed. Um, the flag represents the United States in a more accurate way than, you know, a map would have at many points in history. And talking about this idea of this is a process whereby we're kind of developing ways to communicate with other people about things that are relevant. Echo talks about pertinences and the discovery of new pertinences. So new things become relevant. And then in order to communicate about them with other people to whom we imagine they're relevant, we need to create new ways to express that. And so he talks about that shortly after this on 157, members, I guess, of a fictional ancient society trying to ascertain the difference, he says, between a Viking and a Phoenician. So for all they know, these are just people who are different. Um, they're others, right? They call them barbarians. Um, is it important to distinguish one barbarian from another? Well, at a point, maybe no. When they're coming in to burn down a village or something, it really doesn't matter where they're from because the imminent threat is destruction. Uh, but maybe if you are you know, making a plan later um, to separate these two groups so that you can develop a strategy, suddenly the distinction between a Viking and a Phoenician um, becomes very important. And really, even in ancient Rome, because he does draw on some of those examples here as well, uh, for a long time, pretty much in, in the society of ancient Rome, anyone from the north and like the west and the east, just anywhere outside of Rome was barbarous. They were a barbarian because they were not civilized because how could you possibly be civilized if you weren't already under the great dominion of the Roman Empire. And I think this is a good illustration. Like, at what point does it matter, this distinction that you need to make in the world, a finer grade, or as he puts it, a more elaborate distinction versus a more general one. We talked earlier about color and how the interior decorator needs more elaborate distinctions between these 50 shades of purple than the general contractor who's building the house that they're decorating, right? The eight color box of crayons, the big fat like ones for, you know, little chubby fingers that aren't so good at dexterity yet are 
are, you know, kind of the primary colors are a very restricted code when it comes to producing a message about the world. The great big 64 color box of crayons that you get when you're a little older and more responsible and stop eating them is a much more elaborate code. And this applies to people too. We tend right now to speak of everyone at our southern border who is trying to flee from a conflict somewhere in Central South America. We think of them as barbars, or at least that's the way they are talked about in our national discourse. But those people are people and they come from different places. They sometimes speak different languages, even though we don't recognize the distinction here for our internal purposes, we judge them all as blah, blah people. This is, of course, ethically really problematic, but it suggests like at what point then do we need a better, more refined way to talk about the blah, blah people? Right now, they're all being kind of lumped in as dangerous, but you know, we need a more refined system uh, in order to talk about these people, right? We need better cultural units, in other words. Kind of this idea between the restricted versus the elaborated code, when you have a restricted code and you're easily grouping people uh, as a specific kind of mass, it's almost a step to dehumanization to be able to say, um, oh, well, this group of people, they're not individual uh, families and they're not coming from different situations. They don't have different reasons. They don't eat breakfast. They don't read a book. Uh, We don't think about these people as human when we lump them in this category of barbarians or blah, blah people, as you say. That's a step, I feel like, towards dehumanization and to say these are not people coming from a world like ours. We're simply going to tag them as barbarians and move on. And this is not really a way to appreciate the fundamental, you know, human potential of each person. And now you're really kind of sticking your finger on it because they, the the point of this is that we use cultural units not only to distinguish yellow from green and blue from red or mauve from whatever, I don't even know what color mauve is actually, I just know the word, but that seems fairly innocuous. When we're talking about which human beings deserve ethical recognition, whose life counts and whose life does not count. Now, that's a very ethically charged set of distinctions. And we most absolutely need a more elaborate code than them and us uh, to cope with the responsibility that we have towards other people. I like to talk about the example uh, with my in my classes of the way we talk about drug addicts in the United States or homeless people. We, we step over these people. We ignore them. We walk past them. We avoid speaking with them, even if we do have an opportunity to do so. They are sort of all a part of this one cultural unit that really sort of eclipses their humanity by their condition. And that condition is coded to us as odious. It's it's morally problematic, you know, because we assume in the United States that if you're homeless, you must deserve to be there. You should stop being lazy and uh, stop doing whatever it is that you've been doing to get in that position. And then we paint all people as if they are like this one sort of like symbolic lazy person who just isn't working hard enough and that that's why they're homeless. They're just lazy uh, and want to sponge off the system. But 
In fact, there are a lot of complex reasons why people might be homeless. And there are a lot of people, different kinds of people who end up without housing through no fault of their own. Some of them are black. Some of them are white. Some of them are women. Some of them are men. Some of them are children, right? There are even college students uh, in the United States who struggle with, uh, to, maintain, um, to maintain housing. So in other words, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that these restricted codes, when they apply to outgroups, become really sort of morally problematic because they allow us to not see the other person as a person and they allow us to ignore that other person's suffering. Having that more elaborated code, I think, uh, helps to understand and fill in the multiple scenarios where people are coming from, helps us to make distinctions. Now, that's not to say one once the code moves from a more restricted code to a more elaborated code, this necessarily makes life better um, because the way that uh, a more elaborated code can be used to divide people up further into groups um, can also be used for nefarious ends. Making sure that we're aware of this process and participating in, you know, the way that we define things is important. It seems like, again, like many of the things I know we both talk about in our classes, uh, something that we take it for granted. We don't really think about how it works, but getting into the process of how something moves from a restricted code to an elaborated code, how terms are defined is a really important thing. And to kind of look past what's on the surface and see what is underneath and what is the process underneath of the the words we end up with um, and the way we end up communicating. Right. You know, for the sake of time, maybe we ought to cut this right here, because I think there's still some really important elements of this essay that that we're going to want to talk about and that we're going to unpack. So let's come back and do a second episode on this. Um, In the meantime, I want to thank you again for having these conversations with me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. (laughs) And while we're fighting to outthink one another, let me thank you for listening to this podcast. You can check us out on Apple Podcast, on Spotify, probably some other places. I look forward to focusing with you again. 